Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Matt Harrison, co-founder and CEO of WellAware, and repeat guest Keith Norman, head of technology partnerships at AWS Energy. WellAware is the leading automation platform for the energy industry, focused on oil and gas, water, waste, and air quality. They do this by providing high-quality data collection, automated controls, and AI-driven data insights. I'm excited to hear more, so let's get this conversation started. Matt, Keith, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to WellAware. Keith, let's have you go for first for those who haven't heard you on our previous shows, and then let's have Matt go. Uh, Joe, I appreciate uh, having me back. So Keith Norman, head of technology partnerships for AWS Energy uh, based in San Francisco. Uh, so we're really focused in on uh, working with partners like like WellAware and many others across the industry, really focused on those those deep, hairy, complex, energy specific challenges that where, where data and technology can can be a role and be a player and and um, and helping solve those at scale in the industry. Uh, my background is uh, is purely out of out of operations engineering, uh, almost eighteen years at ExxonMobil in Angola, Chad, Nigeria, Russia, and the U.S., uh, running various engineering and operations teams, and also had the opportunity to run the uh, the safety, health, and environmental organization for, for ExxonMobil Upstream as well. I spent the last uh, four and a half, almost five years here in the in the Bay Area and kind of the energy technology startup ecosystem in the last uh, 18 months of that here at AWS. And Matt, what about you? Let's hear your background and an intro to WellAware. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Joe, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Uh, Matt Harrison, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called WellAware. Uh, we started about 12 years ago, uh, focused in oil and gas, and really to help our customers connect to the things that matter. And we'll unpack that a lot more today on the podcast, but uh, essentially trying to help our customers achieve safer, more sustainable, and more efficient outcomes really through the, the lens of technology and digital transformation. Um, my background is in oil and gas, I guess, if you will, kind of boots on the ground in the field for the last 12 years. And prior to that, uh, mostly in the technology industry. So I'm an electrical engineer by training from Texas A&M University. And I spent my first 15 years in various technology roles, just um, applying technology to industries uh, that that hadn't yet adopted technology and, and driving the benefits attached to it. So 
Uh, it's been fun working on it here in oil and gas, and and uh, we've got a long ways to go. And excited about the work and and the traction that we're starting to gain. All right, thank you for the introduction, and that's exciting. I like that that catchphrase of helping people see what matters. Or I, of course, I'm now butchering exactly what you said, but that that really caught my eye and and seemed very exciting to make to think about that from the side of what what are operators really collecting as far as data what do they think matters what are they looking at as far as data data collection and operations now before we started recording we were talking a little bit and and something you mentioned you you have this kind of ranch background in in a in a sort of sense marrying into a, a ranch family now i am curious how did you go from the from a a kind of rural ranch life into this tech world that you've been in for the past 15 plus years and now into oil and gas yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a really cool story, Joe. Um, I was really blessed to, to marry into the, the family I did. So my wife's family is a, a ranching family out in West Texas. They've had the ranch since the late, uh, late 1800s. And her dad is a fourth generation rancher uh, and his, her brother will take over and is taken over as kind of the fifth generation. So it's a really awesome culture and heritage. And um, we love being out there. That's that's why we live where we do in, in uh, just outside of San Antonio so we can be uh, close to the ranch and, and have raised our children there and, and the whole nine. Um, the the opportunity that that I really um, was exposed to through being on the ranch and spending as much time on the ranch as, as we do is uh, there's production on the ranch, oil and gas production. And as a, you know, as a mineral royalty owner, you're always kind of seeing some of the downsides of uh, having pumpers and gaugers, you know, on the ranch and, you know, roads get torn up when it rains and, and uh, sometimes gates get broken or left open and, and livestock gets run over or gets loose. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, there's, there's a very nice symbiotic relationship with royalty checks that uh, helps smooth everything over. So, um, but that didn't, that didn't really um, excuse for me the opportunity of seeing the gap that existed with, you know, the role that technology could play. You know, how do we, the, the people that we have in oil and gas are incredible. The problem is we just don't have enough of them. And so, you know, I've seen many ways in which technology can help multiply and replicate people um, by adding, you know, more continuous monitoring, more continuous control, and, and, and really just extending humans and, and what humans can do. And so um, I was just fascinating with, fascinated with that problem and, and really kind of the need in the industry to move to more efficiency, safer operations, f- fewer truck rolls when they're unnecessary, fewer accidents in the field, and then, you know, tying all that back to sustainability and, and eliminating carbon footprint. And so technology can play a significant role there. And, and that's really what we've done over the last decade plus at WellAware is worked with our customers to figure out, you know, how to put 
uh, eyes and ears on their critical assets or things like you keyed in on. We connect people to the things that matter. In this case, it's all the critical equipment in the oil field. It's, it's the wellheads. It's the tubing casing pressures. It's the tank levels. It's the compressors. It's the uh, liquid flow rates and the artificial lift technologies and the, you know, the chemical dosing that's used to, to help protect for asset integrity. Those are all things. Those are all widgets that sit out in the middle of nowhere and are very hard to get to. They take a lot of time to get to in a truck. And so when you put technology out there, it's out there 24, seven, 365, and it can take readings every few minutes, every few seconds. And it can even make decisions on controlling things that are changing in real time where historically it may have taken a human, you know, a day, a week, a month, in some cases, multiple months to see that problem and address it. So it's really a great opportunity. Um, for the entire industry to continue to move forward and just this digital transformation that we're entering uh, as an industry. It's interesting, Matt, as you were, um, as you were talking, it kept coming to my mind sort of the, the word creativity or maybe underutilizing the, the creativity that's, that's been out there in the industry. Um, when we just haven't been able to see assets, we haven't been able to see performance data. We haven't been able to see real time data uh, because it's just been hard and hairy and non-economic uh, technologically to, to instrument and, and get all that data from the field. Um, one of the things I've seen is you start to get data streams like, like you guys are delivering. Um, once you can see it and you can start to have that transparency into what's going on out there, that's when you can unleash all these super creative engineers and operators and just sort of professionals that we've got in the industry that without that data, like they just, that creativity can't come out. But as soon as you can see it, you can see the problem. Now all, all of that training and all those juices start to start to start to start turning over and you start to really be able to experiment and try things and see did it work or not. So it's, a I kind of see it broadly as just this big unlock of creativity, which, you know, apply that to optimization, apply that to cost savings, apply that clearly to decarbonization and, and, and kind of overall footprint. Um, but maybe it's an interesting lens that I've, I've seen to start to evolve as this data becomes available. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that that role of data real quick before we jump to that. I want to just confirm and and put a a, a note here. What we're talking about right now is kind of the upstream space, kind of at the well pad and data collection from the production stream. Is that correct? Yeah, primarily upstream and midstream are the two segments of the industry that WellAware serves. Okay. And I will, I'll get back to this point later on in the conversation, but so make a mental note for everybody there. Now, thinking about, thinking through this, there were multiple different data points or different inputs to that production stream that you mentioned. And you mentioned things like um, geochemistry and different inhibitors that you're putting in, different pump rates or production rates or wellhead pressures or all of these different things. Can you help me understand on a well pad, just in general, how many different things can actually be monitored? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> it depends on 
you know, what the oil pad looks like. So there are a variety of different oil pads. You know, historically we had a well on a pad with a couple tank batteries on it. And, you know, there you can, you can monitor um, really any of the surface level equipment. So, you know, kind of, if you start at the wellhead tubing and casing pressure, very critical to understand kind of the overall health of the reservoir. Uh, you'd be surprised at how few wells actually have real-time tubing and casing pressure uh, monitored on them today. Uh, as you can, you know, as wells are drilled and they produce over their life, they're they're very likely to be on some type of artificial lift, whether it be beam lift or plunger or gas lift or um, you know any of these, even ESPs. Those are very much you know opportunities for for monitoring and control all of those those uh, automation technologies and artificial lift techniques. A lot of times wells need to be treated for chemistry. Uh, they've got a lot of different corrosives uh, coming out of the, the reservoir and or they may have heavy paraffins or wax which builds up and, and can clog the well bore. Uh, so you have chemical treatment that needs to happen at the wellhead. And uh, we've historically seen very few of, of those assets that have been automated or monitored. And so there's a big drive towards that now in the industry to help, um, really to help improve asset integrity and to help reduce failure rates out in the field. Uh, then as you kind of move through, you can, you can monitor the separation of the oil, gas, and the water as it comes out. You can monitor the flow meters that measure how much hydrocarbon and how much water was produced uh, of course, you've got your tanks that you that you can monitor. Um, a lot of times, those tanks, the the water that's produced is sent to a saltwater disposal facility, so that can be measured. Uh, lack transfer units, pressures, temperatures, levels, flows, all these these things exist on a typical well pad. And um, as you get into the midstream side. You have compression stations, which are you know a, a great, a very rich opportunity for monitoring. Uh, the compressors themselves are very expensive, complex machines that need to be serviced and maintained appropriately, and so monitoring is is critical for those. Um, and then you know monitoring even things like lube oil and coolant. You'd be surprised at how valuable high resolution data monitoring of lube oil consumption on a compression station is. You can actually tell the health of a compressor by how much oil it eats up on a daily basis, if you will. And so there's so much value you can extract to what Keith was kind of alluding to earlier through the lens of data. Um, really the opportunities are, are endless. The, the industry has some levels of, of monitoring in place already through um, you know, SCADA systems that, that they've put out. But a lot of times those SCADA systems don't reach all their wells. They definitely don't reach all of the assets or equipment on a well site like we've just kind of unpacked. And so there's all kinds of opportunities to enhance the amount of data that's being collected, um, the resolution, the quality, the integrity of that data, uh, so that ultimately you're working with a data set that is in the cloud, it is accessible to multiple people, and you can begin to unlock the value behind that trusted data for lots of, you know, for, for lots of uh, beneficiaries of that data, whether it be data analysts or 
you know, field technicians that are trying to make a decision on what they do next in the field. So lots of potential uh, monitoring assets out, out in the field on oil and gas, well pads, uh, central delivery facilities, uh, compression stations, saltwater disposal facilities, et cetera. Yeah, I think that you kind of hit the net on hit that the nail on the head there as you're talking about all of those different opportunities as far as the various components to measure data. And then as you were talking, I was I was counting in my head, okay, now we're at a dozen. Okay, now we're at two dozen. And all of those data points, then thinking about if you're collecting data at each of those, you're now in this intricate web of a well pad. And if you pull one lever, ultimately that's going to change what happens to the other side or potentially to some other part of the production system. And I was just trying to understand, okay, how does this actually work from a from a a fundamental perspective? How do we actually do this practically? And then starting to talk about the the cloud management and being able to bring everything in and get everything into one system so that the analyst can see it and view it and have access to all of the data beyond just separator A versus separator B versus versus tubing pressure from well one versus well two. I think that's, it still seems like a very large lofty case of what do you do with your 20 streams of data and how do you manage that? But it also seems like there is, there is that, that solution there. Keith, do you yeah. have... Go ahead, Matt. Well, great, great. I didn't mean to interrupt Keith. He knows a lot more about this than I do. But, um, so, so <laughs> Keith, jump in. But couple, uh, couple, just thoughts I had while you were saying that, Joe. One is arguably probably one of the most uh, famous quotes I've heard attached to business in the you know probably the last few decades. But uh, it's a Peter Drucker quote, and you know he just said, "You can't improve what you don't measure." And a uh, very generic quote, and you can apply it to lots of things, but it's extremely relevant here. Um, you also kind of describe this, <clears throat> you know, very, um, you know, very, very large, uh, you know, kind of ominous situation of, gosh, there's a lot of stuff out there and this could get really complex and it's all interconnected and you're a hundred percent right. And the other thing I'd say, which this audience listening in, in oil and gas understands really well, is there's not two wells out there that perform the same. Every well is different. Every well <laughs> gives you a whole different set of challenges. And so what we believe that's calling for, and you know, frankly, I think the onus is largely on the technology industry here to help customers solve this challenge. Uh, but the challenge is to get as much data from the edge. And when I say data from the edge, I'm talking about reliable data. What does that mean? It means high resolution. It means, you know, you're not losing data. So you've got ways of storing it and sending it later if, if for whatever reason communications isn't available. And it's accurate. 
uh, and it is it is normalized from the edge. And that is critical. You were talking about some things earlier, uh, Joe, and I don't know if you're doing it purposefully or not, but like separator one, separator two, tubing casing for, you know, tubing and casing from the Harrison 4H or the, or the Norman, you know, 6H or, you know, the, the reality is there's a lot of data that the industry has today. It's just not normalized and it's in a really bad state. And so we gotta, we gotta take that data and we got to be able to put it into a format where we can start to make sense of it. So that starts with super high resolution data that's normalized from the edge that people that are consuming it, again, whether it be data analysts or whether it be field technicians, they can trust the data that they're working with. They know it as, you know, uh, the Harrison 4H data, tubing and casing, and they know what that well is doing. And so when they see that data on their iPhone, they know, you know, intellectually, yeah, that makes sense. That's what that well does. When you, when you have reliable data like that, you can establish trust both with the field and with the data analytics team that are sitting, you know, somewhere else in Houston or, or somewhere else analyzing these data streams. And when you have trust, you begin to see behaviors change. They begin to adopt it more and use it more in their daily activities. And when you begin to see adoption, that's the first time in my experience that you really begin to see results change, whether it be avoided trips to the field, improvements in TRI, our safety records, uh, reduction in carbon footprints. Uh, and the very obvious one is you just start saving a ton of money on your LOE expenses. And so, but you cannot skip step one, two, and three, if you want to get to the benefits attached to step four. Yeah, let me, let me add in here. So I think, Joe, you're right in that, you know, as we get more and more data coming in, and, and the industry in general has always had a lot of data now. Is it the right data to, to solve the right problem is a different different question. Um, but I think we have a history of it being generally siloed into systems that are what I would call systems of record. They're, they're meant to store and keep the data just in case you need it, just in case you need it to look back at history, just in case you need it for, you know, in this case of SCADA, it's for you know, safety systems. Um, the problem is a lot of that infrastructure was never designed for analytics and, and multivariable analytics where you're looking at you know, multiple systems all together and how they interact with each other, which is where things get really interesting. And so one of the things that we've been doing a fair bit of our investment is, is AWS is really on on that data infrastructure and how do you get all that data out of, you know, if that's on-prem systems or pieces of software and not change where it's located, not change its sort of point of record. Those are great. There's lots of investments been made in those systems of record for data, but it's more of a system of reference of, well, how do I connect to it and pull it in so that I can visualize it very simply? And so that as an engineer, um, I mean, there's lots of great data that are not great data, actually bad data that says, you know, how much of a data scientist time is spent just sort of wrangling and cleansing data. And it's, you know, it's a it's a huge amount of their time. So how do we sort of reduce um, some of those barriers through creating the, the right plumbing and the right connectors to be able to, to get to these data sets and then the right technolo- technologies and tools to be able to visualize it and to start to, to play with it. And one of the things that we've seen is maybe a common um, 
mistake uh, as we think about sort of the convergence of IT organizations and operations organizations is sort of this common theme of, oh, our data is really dirty. Oh, we, we've got to get, let's invest to clean up all our data and then we can use it to go solve problems. And we see that just being sort of a recipe to spend a lot of money without a great outcome. Um, and really starting to work with customers on the opposite and I say, well, no, 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 let's start with what you're trying to really achieve. And that what you're probably trying to achieve is not, I want to, you know, look at my entire thousand well field as one continuous system simulating the whole system to optimize it. It's maybe a bit of a grand objective um, to maybe a simple, I know that that pump's not running at the right efficiency, or I know I'm using more chemical than I should. Let me just go solve that problem. And, and what you end up seeing is, okay, great. If I want to solve that problem, well, the data streams I need, let me, let me, let me cleanse those data streams in, in the, spirit of solving a business problem that has an ROI to it. So one, it's much easier to go get the money to go do that because now you've got a clear ROI. And two, it's just it's just a smaller bite at the apple that you can get started. Um, and we've and I've seen this throughout you know pre-AWS both at my, my ExxonMobil days as well. Um, these, this is a momentum play. This is not walking in and saying I'm gonna I'm gonna solve it all. It's finding a business case, solving it and going, oh, that was great. I should go apply that to these 10 wells and then these 100 wells and all, you know, this part of the field. And what if, if I could do that with, you know, chemicals, what if I could do that, you know, with my compressors and starting to build that momentum where the ROI starts to pile up because that early ROI is very, very high on these things. Um, and you start to build that momentum and behind it. And that's when the, the, you know, really starting to put the systems in place to more at scale, manage that data, cleanse that data. You can start to get the momentum because you've got, you know, earnings and improvements and operational improvements sitting behind you to support that versus the opposite, which is I'm going to go do a big data cleansing exercise. And my ROI is like, I, I, I kind of think it's out there, but well, I have to clean it first, then I'll figure it out um, is really kind of the wrong pathway. And we've seen that mistake happen time and time again. And uh, ideally, we're seeing the industry start to start to ideally change their their approach. That's a really interesting point because what I'm hearing you say with the idea of of finding that problem or or identifying a a clear underperforming well and then providing the solution for that well and then going it, almost like a incremental improvements and kind of that 1% change every day to get that compounding effect versus the idea of trying to retrofit or completely redo the entire system. And it it sounds like a one big, large upfront capital cost versus those small improvements. So I want to, yeah. I want to think about that as far as when we're talking about say, well aware what is the i guess business model if you will or, or how do we actually go in and apply well aware to making either incremental improvements or what what is the alternative is that alternative going in and completely retrofitting a well pad or a well field yeah and i, I couldn't agree more with what what keith had to say in terms of you know, approach and, and, you know, begin with the end in mind, find some of the biggest problems and, you know, take bite-sized pieces and, and build momentum. It's, 
it, it is critical in, my, in our experience to avoid um, what unfortunately the industry has termed, you know, pilot purgatory, where you just put a lot of these things out there as widgets and, you know, they just kind of get stuck. You, you, you don't really tie outcomes to, you know, the CapEx expense that, that customers, you know, spent to put a piece of hardware out there. So wellware has been, you know, working with our customers over the years and really trying to solve this problem. And, you know, it's, it's been humbling uh, in a sense because, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm a tech guy like we talked about in the beginning. And, and I really think that our technology is cool. And uh, I've learned that that's a pretty lonely group of one, like no one else cares <laughs> about our tech. So uh, what they care about is outcomes and they care about solving problems. And so what we've tried to do with our customers is uh, listen to them in terms of, hey, how do we how do I identify some of your biggest challenges around labor shortage right now or uh, LOE expenses or um, you know, driving higher resolution around monitoring attached to sustainability related initiatives and doing pilots that are very clearly defined and have very, very specific return on investment criteria attached to them. So we call it, you know, the continuum of edge to insight. So WellAware is a, a turnkey managed service provider we do deploy all the necessary equipment that you need in the field on whatever asset we're, we're solving for, uh, whatever problem we're solving for. But we don't just stop at you know, installing the, the hardware. We walk the customer through the data journey and we tie it with them to financial outcomes. And so they can very rapidly see the benefits of you know, enhanced data monitoring and control and how you you start to drive really clear, tangible return on investment uh, for you know each specific problem they're trying to solve, uh, whether it be you know uh, reducing failures out in the field attached to chemical programs or uh, improving production or you know driving transparency around different relationships that exist. Um, those are all very specific programs we've done in the past. And we also now are very flexible in terms of the the actual uh, you know pricing model that we deploy. We, we will uh, we have in many cases, in fact, it's really become our standard where it's a it's a zero capex investment for our customers. And so, you know, just for a monthly fee, we include everything: all the hardware, um, all the training, all the customer support, the software, the data analytics that you need for this pilot is really rolled up into a monthly fee and we guarantee the life of, of the hardware. So if anything ever happens to the hardware out in the field, we'll just come out there with our, our field operations team and, and replace it and address it for you. And we, we do that because we're learning that customers have enough to deal with out in the field. They don't want to own another widget out there to take care of. Uh, they're shorthanded anyway. So that's one option. Uh, so customers have kind of an all in monthly service option they can use we also have a, a CapEx option, and we recognize that sometimes our customers have budgets. They have capital budgets that they're trying to work within. And so, you know, maybe a hybrid of, uh, you know, a CapEx with a smaller monthly rate, something like that might be beneficial for our customers. We try to be really flexible 
and, and just uh, address their needs where they are. At the end of the day, we're passionate about helping our customers achieve better outcomes and doing it through the lens of data. And we're just going to work with them to start, like Keith said, on a project, on a pilot. And we're not going to make it you know, cost prohibitive to get done. In fact, a lot of our customers are going, wow, that's a lot cheaper than and a lot faster than what I ever imagined was possible. Yeah, well, we, we want to help the industry move in this direction because we all know uh, that it's it's the direction the industry needs to move. Everyone's carrying an iPhone or some kind of smartphone in their pockets. And, and w- as people, as consumers, we know the power of technology and what it can do for us. We also know the downfalls of it. Uh, but we know that, that it can be beneficial. And, and we've yet to really see that take hold in how it can transform oil and gas operators and, and even you know, um, <clears throat> folks on the IT operations management side back in corporate, we have yet to see the benefits of digital transformation in the oil and gas industry. I think we're still in the first inning and, uh, and we, we've got a long way to go. But the way we get there is, is uh, you know, by getting on first base and, and that's these pilots and, and lowering the barrier to entry and, and measuring results very quickly so that we build momentum, just like Keith was talking about. Yep, absolutely. Now, I want to talk about the environmental impact. I've got a few quick ideas that that have been coming to mind as we've been talking that I would think people see as potential hurdles. So I want to go through these and talk about them so that way we can look at this holistic well optimization system, if you will, and understand what are these of these potential hurdles like what are they actually hurdles or how would we actually go about thinking about them one of the first ones that that i'm thinking is older equipment something like old fields in east texas or say the early austin chalk plays what about those that this is old existing equipment wells are maybe five ten years old can those be retrofitted or are they kind of a lost cause let me i can maybe jump in on this one uh they're not a lost cause that's actually that's if you look at just the well counts and you put an asset in a well on the ground it those things are going to be running for decades um and so we have to be able to solve that problem and um I actually have to agree with uh, what what Matt said. I too don't care about his technology. Um, <laughs> that so, hurts my feelings, Keith. No, it, it's what, what I actually think is interesting is is I think this is solved with the commercial models. Obviously, you got to have the technology there, but I think the, the commercial models and it, it is what's more of interest to me. And like that's the example of when you're going through a brownfield equation, you're not thinking about adding capex. That's, yeah. that's the last thing that you want to be doing is adding more CapEx to these depleting assets that are, you know, later in their life, but are still going to be running and producing ideally economically for, for a number of years. And if you can get the right data and the right optimization and the right cost profile, you can maybe even run them for, for many more years beyond what you thought. Um, that's where you really start to get into this OPEX pro po- profile and this flexibility. And now the equation isn't, man, I got to go put all this capital in to, to get better telemetry and better data. Now it's, well, can I, if I could 
get better data for, you know, $30 per month or $50 per month or $70 per month, whatever the, the right number is, depending on what you need. But for some, some amount per month, now my math is, okay, what could I do with that information? And could I, could I make that economic, you know, at each and every month to, if, to pay, to pay for that? And so the, the math becomes, you know, very, very different. And, and by the way, when you start to look at some of those, you know, the cost to be able to, to deploy and get this data on a managed service, you're not, you're not talking about massive increases in, in production to start to, to pay for that. Um, but you're also equally looking at, I can, I can get production, but now that I've got the insight, now I can think about what my, my decarbonization metrics are. And all those things in the brownfield where you really are going to have to think about leaks and you're going to have to think about, you know, how these things degrade over time and, and their performance. Um, but you got to justify it in the, in the cost. And so these OPEX models become really, really compelling. I think it's one of, from an innovation standpoint, you know, I get much more excited about the commercial model innovation that's starting to occur because of the technology than, than the technology itself. Yeah. And let me, let me just take what Keith said on a brownfield and break it down into some really specific examples um, that, that customers could be thinking about, that, that operators could be thinking about. Um, you know, the, these wells, like Keith was saying, are, are you know kind of on the, the mature end of their production curve. Usually at this point in time, production's pretty stable and, and predictable. Um, and so you, you, you have a relatively, you know, based on the price of oil and gas, uh, relatively stable income stream coming in. And then you've got your your LOE attached to it, <clears throat> and LOE is really made up of you know primarily labor, uh, utilities, chemicals, um, uh, and 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 other services, maybe uh, water hauling and, and things like that. And so, as you really begin to to dive into each of those examples, the you know employing kind of this idea of of a zero capex you know, very light monthly fee, you can, you can quickly, and, and we're talking about within months, sometimes within a month, you, you can more than justify, you know, the, the expense of, of putting a, a, you know, a, a monthly monitoring and control platform like a Wellaware out in the field on these assets. And so uh, some specific examples might be, you know, if you've got, <clears throat> X numbers of, of pumpers in the field, both you know full time and contract, which is very, uh, very common. We don't want to replace those people, but naturally, what's happening is there's attrition. Uh, people are retiring. People are finding another job in, in a different industry, um, and instead of backfilling those folks, we're able to, you know, not have that happen. So you you can still operate those wells. Uh, through remote monitoring and control and leverage the staff that you have online to, to take advantage of their expertise and train them on this new technology. So they, they actually improve their quality of life and their role because they're, you know, they're controlling things from the comfort of their own home or they're, they're looking at different wells from the comfort of their own home. They still have to go out and address issues, but they're no longer rolling out to check on a well, they're now rolling out knowing what's going on with that well and what they're going to have to face when they get there and how to best address it. And so imagine how much more efficient they're going to be with their, their time. 
Um, another example might be on the chemical side. Maybe you're using uh, a foamer to you know help improve the gas production on a very mature gas field. Well, you know we just kind of generally make some assumptions in terms of how much foamer we should inject. And remember, every well is different and conditions within the well change and the reservoir change all the time. So why not monitor the exact amount of foamer that should be injected into that gas well to optimize the gas production? Now you're not over-injecting foamer and wasting chemical money. And you're also not missing out on the opportunity right now to sell more gas at a much higher you know, dollar per MCF. So the ROI numbers, when you attach, you know, the benefits that technology can bring to kind of some of these benefits and outcomes, just on a financial case, makes a lot of sense. And and then you start rolling in avoided trips to the field and improvements to safety records and, and avoided carbon footprints and avoided wasted chemistry or leaks uh, that Keith mentioned. Uh, this is where you know, this is where the, the ROI gets really interesting for, for deploying technology. Yeah, I can see where you're going and, and how all of that compounds onto itself to build these added benefits and increase the ROI in a, in not so much a linear rate, but almost closer to a something beyond linear. The one one big question, though, that I'm sure others are thinking about, especially those that are that have traveled in West Texas. What about dead zones where we don't have cell service? And is it still cost effective to use something like satellite communication? Or is are those areas just kind of now those are are unattainable solutions? Yes, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great question. And and this is where I would say the tailwinds of technology are at our back. And, and so I, I had the privilege of <clears throat> getting a really cool tour of, of a pretty large refinery in South Texas yesterday. And I mean, this is, this refinery is processing hundreds, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil a day and um, all within a, a fence that's, you know, made up of, you know, not even a hundred acres. So, I mean, it, well, maybe a few more than that, but I mean, it's not a huge, it's not a huge plant. So everything is controlled right there locally, the amount of automation and uh, wiring and infrastructure and monitoring and control that's present is, is impressive and everything happens from a control room right there on site. The challenge as you move into the midstream world and the upstream world, Joe, is exactly what you alluded to is you start to get very remote. You start to find yourself out in the middle of nowhere, Texas, or nowhere, New Mexico, or nowhere, North Dakota, and uh, you just these are, these are places that just don't have a lot of people, and therefore historically have not had a lot of infrastructure. And uh, but that said, the benefits of technology are are beginning to blow. Uh, at, at our backs. And so cellular coverage has dramatically improved since I've been doing well aware over the last 10 years. Um, it is, we're able to capture 99.9% of the assets that we monitor with cellular today. Uh, you have other, you know, kind of gap filling technologies available to you like LoRa, um, Bluetooth, et cetera, where you, where you need extensions. Uh, you also have satellite technologies like you referenced, um, there's 
there's legacy satellite technologies. And then of course, you know, you have things like Starlink and other competitors of Starlink that are, that are moving very rapidly. And so this idea of coverage is, is becoming not as much of an issue, you know, going forward. We also are getting the benefits of very low cost edge computing. And so we can now put really high process, uh, high powered processors, high, highly capable processors that don't require a lot of uh, power. They can run on batteries for months and, and years in some cases that can sit out on the edge in these very remote places and, and capture these data sets and, and send these control signals. And so um, that's a tremendous benefit that we're all just leveraging. It has nothing to do with WellAware. You know, it's, it's thanks to the Apples and the, you know, the Teslas and the, you know, the Intels and the, all the chip manufacturers out there. They're just driving these trends in consumer electronics. We're able to leverage some of that same technology. Um, and, and the result is we're able to deploy very cost effective, very reliable solutions in very remote and hazardous locations that last. And if you, you kind of go back to one of the comments we were talking about earlier, when you do that, you get to a reliable data set and you cannot skip that. I think there's so much carnage in the industry of failed attempts at doing this where something broke or something didn't last in the field because it was too remote or it was too harsh and hazardous and consumer electronics just fall apart. Well, WellAware has taken the chips that are available out there that are very advanced and highly capable and they're in our cell phones, et cetera. And we've put them into a, a design and a special harsh and hazardous certified package that can last in the extremes, you know, both from a ruggedization perspective and even from an environmental perspective, even from a hazardous gas perspective that exists in the oil field. And that's hard to do. That is really hard to do. And so, um, but we're doing it all with the view to get to reliable data outcomes that are cost effective and, once you have that data, that's really where things start getting exciting because the, the data doesn't lie. It tells you some really interesting things. And I tell people around here at, at Wellaware all the time, if I could do one thing all the time, I, I think I'd just be a data scientist. I love diving into our data for our customers and just helping them find really interesting issues and, and address those. I wish I had more time to do it. But it doesn't need to be a human doing it. We need to have technology doing it uh, more and more over time. Yeah, I want to get into that component as well. The last kind of potential hurdle I see, it sound, we've kind of already talked all about it, but safety. Is there any potential for added risk as we're talking about automation, all of these different components that we are collecting data and potentially automating processes? Is there any way to get some type of runaway effect or something that gets missed because there aren't human eyes on it that creates a new hazard? I mean, I would, I would say, you know, there, you hate to say never, never possible, but I think about this in the sense of, of, of probabilities and really some of the, you know, advancements in just automation and controls in general. When I, when I think about safety and, and sort of it, it, it will, let's roll environmental impacts like spills and things like that. And you, your, your base case 
in many of these operations, especially as we think about remote um, operations and brownfield operations, um, is I need to go put people on the road, driving around, um, going into the line of fire, which means walking up and spending time next to pressurized equipment. And the reality, if you look at the statistics in the industry, one of the biggest drivers of, of injuries and fatalities is, is driving and moving and just physically being in the line of fire. And if you can reduce the number of people out there, um, reduce the number of, of hours physically exposed to a potential hazardous condition, the, the better you are. So that's sort of one component. The second component is because these things are remote, when you do have a leak or a spill, it oftentimes will, will go on for weeks and, and months, days, weeks, or months, depending on the, depending on the sort of the size and scale of it, because it's depending on that person to come out there and see it. And again, now, now that you can have, you know, data rolling in, you can start to see an anomaly. You can start to see, uh, you maybe can't pick up exactly what's wrong, but you can pick up something's wrong. And then you can, you know, you know, selectively send somebody out to take a look at it um, and in a really targeted way. So, so I see this, the benefits there around what you can do with both data, but also controls and being able to take actions are just so far outweigh, um, you know, potential scenarios of, uh, you know, of, of potential downsides. Now, as you move from, you know, more remote, you know, single pads, single wells into, you know, more complex refining facilities, then, you know, the risk profiles go up and the automation challenges uh, continually go up. And I think there's a, there's a higher level of, of, of planning and care and piloting and testing that needs to happen to, to do that. But I think we sometimes take sort of our mental model for these big complex, um, you know, processing facilities and then apply that down to all these distributed assets and the risk profiles to start their night and day. And, um, and so I think that's, that's a little the balance the industry needs to to have is have, you know, put the right risk profile um, and don't stop the progress of what technology can deliver from a safety environmental impact uh, because we've got the right, the wrong risk lens on it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would say, you know, there's no perfect technology, um, you know, everything's going to have a bump in the road. Everything's going to need to have, uh, you know, an issue solved. There's, there's nothing that's, um, you know, unhackable. People ask me a lot, Hey, is, is well aware platform, you know, unhackable or, you know, we have a cybersecurity threat if we, we go through you in the cloud. And I'm, you know, the, the first thing I tell people is I'll never say that we're unhackable, but, you know, I think your best bet in that scenario is to leverage, the leading technology that's out there, um, you know, to address some of these threats, whether they be automation related, cybersecurity related. It's one of the really big reasons why we partner with AWS and, and Amazon. And it's, it's the rule of, of obvious, right? I mean, who has the most to lose here in a cybersecurity situation? It's not well aware. It's the biggest companies in the world. And so you got to expect that Companies like Amazon, which they very much have, they've got the best engineers, the best talent out there looking to solve cybersecurity threats everywhere at every turn. And so that's why we chose to put our trust and our platform and technology inside of their cloud and, and partner with them. And the last thing I would say is it really does require a partnership. If um, if you're, you know, if we're talking to a customer who, you know, is, is, uh, is very much kind of the, the mindset of, ah, show me, I don't trust that, I don't believe it. 
we're pretty skeptical these days about that ending in a positive situation because they're looking for something to fail. Um, where we've where we've seen great results uh, with some of the largest operators and service providers in the industry is when we engage in a partnership with our technology partners like AWS, uh, our customers, whether they be an operator, and in some cases even partnering between operators and service providers, and and everybody coming together, OT and IT, and going, hey, you know, let's try this, let's find a problem. Let's apply the technology to it. Let's set a very clear set of balance and, su- and success criteria. And let's recognize that, yeah, there's some risk going in, but but let's also work together to solve every tra- challenge that, that faces us. And in those cases, Joe, it's almost 10 out of 10 where we see great success. Um, we, we see phenomenal improvements over the you know kind of mean and, and standard of care, if you will, and just like Keith was saying, it's just, you know, what technology can bring is orders of magnitude better than the current standard operating procedures that are out there. And, you know, it takes this collaborative partnership where everybody's working hard to make it successful. Uh, but when you do that, it's very much worthwhile at the end of the day. I like that answer. It makes sense. I don't know if I have any any intuitive insight or anything else to add. So I'm just going to let it leave it right there where it is with everything you all said because it was just so great. With that, I want to come back to that idea. Right now, WellAware is really focused on that upstream production into the midstream space. But we talked about that there are aspects of of the water of waste of air quality those different things that can be monitored and optimized that are areas that you are actively working in or into so beyond the upstream and midstream area what other areas do you see either in oil and gas or in those areas that can collect data where you see opportunities to apply well aware and and really in that that viewpoint of decarbonization and of ways to increase efficiencies to ultimately lower that carbon intensity and greenhouse gas emission intensity. Yeah. Uh, well we, we see it both within oil and gas and and we've even you know begun to get pulled into some uh, other industrial uh, industries that have very similar applications but within oil and gas you know you start looking at uh, avoiding waste well there's a tremendous amount of waste today it 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 comes in the form of uh you know chemistry that's used um you know to try to uh, prevent you know, very negative outcomes. A lot of times those chemistries are over-injected or injected when they don't need to be injected. And so uh, that's a waste. That's a waste on uh, the environment. That's a waste on the supply chain and the manufacturing process and the effort and energy it took to create that, you know, that, that gallon of chemistry. It also has a really negative effect as you're trying to sell these hydrocarbons. It, it degrades the ultimate hydrocarbon stream as it kind of moves its way into the high, uh, into the midstream and downstream parts of the industry. So, uh, avoiding 
wasted chemistry is, is one very specific area we've really helped our customers measure and then address. Um, another one is, uh, like you said, just water and, and recognizing within the oil and gas industry how critical water is as such a limited resource. And, and so we've had great success work, working with our partners uh, to really reduce the amount of fresh water that's being used in, you know, their drilling and, and fracking efforts and, and uh, you know, kind of increase the amount of reused water that's that's used in the industry. And that's that's a huge victory for uh, our customers and well, we're, you know, we get to be a, a small part of that. Uh, another one is, is uh, you know, and just kind of the, the air quality uh, initiatives. And we have a number of uh, efforts going in, in that specific area, uh, helping our customers uh, monitor uh, and, you know, understand how to get a, you know, more of a real-time continuous understanding of hazardous gases that may be present out on site uh, and avoiding some of the really point-based and expensive solution like FLIR cameras and imaging techniques that are, you know, they're kind of one-off. You, you go do it every week or every month and they're, they're very expensive services to contract and uh, require very expensive equipment. So we're working on ways to leverage technology to, to create more of a continuous, you know, real time view of, of potential hazardous gases that are, that are out on site. And the technology stack that we've built and deployed over the last decade is largely the same. It's, it's really just changing out the, the sensor sets that are attached to these and leveraging a lot of that infrastructure that we've talked about on this podcast, the ability to have an intelligent edge that can collect high resolution, reliable data, and even make decisions out in the field and bringing that data right back into the cloud, like Keith had talked about and making it accessible to a, a variety of users and existing systems of record. So we can move data in and out of SCADA systems, data historians, ERP systems, uh, but we also just can make data available to uh, to everyone that needs to see it or that has the you know, the appropriate access to see it in real time. So it's kind of this democratization of data to the right people at the right time so they can make the right decisions. Um, so, you know, again, Wellware is, is continuing to grow and we've focused in a few very specific applications uh, on the Wellpad and in the upstream and midstream spaces that we've talked about. But you know, we see this opportunity to to continue to move into avoiding waste waste in the industry, you know, improving the way water is handled and treated as a limited resource, and, and and driving more visibility around emissions and and helping our customers measure uh, what's going on out there so that they can ultimately improve the way they operate and reduce their carbon footprints. Um, you know, all the while improving safety, reducing unnecessary truck rolls. Those are very, very big contributors to uh, some of the challenges the industry is facing. And we're, we're seeing a great opportunity to improve those metrics as well. That's great. And very exciting to hear all of the different opportunities and really what you can see once you start collecting that data and start finding where optimization can occur by being able to analyze all of the data together. With that, I want to jump into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. And 
You'll both get to answer them. Keith, since you just answered them a few weeks ago, you get to answer them again. And let's see if you have any new thoughts, new ideas, new book recommendations. The first question there being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Matt, let's start with you on this question. Uh, yeah. I, well, look, I uh, am an entrepreneur. I love company building. I, I love the challenges associated with it. And I want to give a big shout out to all the, the entrepreneurs out there that might be listening and walking through the difficulties of, of uh, finding a market, creating a, an idea and hiring a team and building a company and understanding what it takes to make a payroll. It's, it's hard. And one of the best books, I've read a lot of business books, you know, around uh, starting companies and, and, and building, you know, new initiatives. But one of the best ones I've seen is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It was written by uh, Mark Andreessen and, you know, I, I, or no, not Andreessen. It was written by Horowitz, his partner. Sorry, I, uh, uh, I got those too confused. But it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, written by Horowitz. There's some pretty uh, there's some pretty racy rap language in it that I, I, I want to disclose so don't leave it open out if you you know if you, <laughs> you don't uh, want young kids or children to see that but <laughs> at the uh, at the end of the day it is some of the most profound truth that I've found actually having walked in these shoes for a couple decades now and building companies and um, you know being a, a founder CEO is a very lonely place it's it's very very hard and so it, it, it was really uh, comforting uh, to read and, and recognize that, you know, a lot of the things, a lot of the challenges I face are things that others face day to day. And so it was an encouragement to me, and I hope it's an encouragement to others out there that uh, are, are really tip of the tip of the spear in, in innovation and, and starting new companies. And, and uh, sure hope you guys get a chance to read that book and continue, uh, you, you guys and girls out there continue to build these great companies that we need to, to drive our country and our world forward going forward. That is a, a common recommendation on the list, and I definitely need to read it sooner rather than later. Keith, what about you? Do you have another book to recommend? I do. Of course I'm coming with another book. I got I'm, I'm, I'm good for like 10, 12 of these episodes. I, just, I, got, I got book lists going all over. So I think last time I recommended The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver, um, which is a great book if you want to nerd out on on kind of unique ways thinking about how data is utilized. Um, totally different recommendation this, this time. So I'm going to recommend uh, a book called Blueprint for a Revolution by, I'm going to butcher the name, Sergio Popovic. And I always like to go get insights from outside of business, outside of engineering, outside of energy, and just to sort of where, where can we learn things from other spots. So this is um, a book on nonviolent resistance movements and how they've been effective at what's the formula to be effective at making massive regime change. So this is coming off the back of overthrowing governments, um, overthrowing you know, oppressive regimes, um, and what are the techniques? And if it, ultimately, if you sort of boil it down, there's some great insights on how to, what I would say, how to, how to create a movement. And, and a lot of it is back to something we talked about is starting incremental, starting small, starting to lay the foundation for success later, starting to build momentum and get people really 
you know, connecting with people and, and, and letting their passion fuel things versus, you know, as a leader feeling like you need to own sort of driving this, you know, the definition of a movement is you get others on board who really start to drive the change you're trying to, to drive. And I've used a number of these techniques in, in running organizations in the, in the past. And I think it's a, it's a great one for, I think the change that we, we as an industry need to make and just societally in terms of as we try to drive towards, you know, a, a lower, a lower, lower carbon future and some of the big hefty challenges in front of us, it, it's not going to be sort of the single, single leader with an idea. It's going to be really creating a movement and, and the energy of, of, you know, millions upon millions of people really getting behind bringing their creativity to bear. So that's my, that's my recommendation this week. That sounds like a great recommendation and it definitely sounds like it is exactly what we need right now as we're talking about chasing net zero and having this be a full societal, full worldwide push towards net zero. Really, it it needs to be a movement and not a not this divisive, combative thing that it is right now. It really needs everybody behind it pushing forward towards this common goal. With that idea, the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? Matt, let's have you go first again. Man, that is a very hard question. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to reference the, you know, the Paris Accords and the 2050, you know, target that was thrown out there. I think that's interesting and, you know, lots of people much, much smarter than I did, uh, you know, put into put, put a lot of research and effort into figuring out when that might be possible. But I'm going to go with a different one. Um, I'm going to align myself with a fellow entrepreneur who is, um, you know, probably one of the most well-respected out there, which is Elon Musk. And, you know, one of the things I recently heard him say in a podcast is he will be shipping thousands of people to, uh, Mars in 2030 on his, uh, you know, his, his new, um, his new program to, to colonize Mars. And so, and his reasoning behind that is we may have destroyed the planet by then. So I'm going to say we need to figure it out before 2030 because I'm really afraid to take the trip to Mars. So, uh, 2030 is my date. We got to get it done. All right. I, this is one of the first references to Elon Musk, specifically in this question. So this is very interesting. And, and I think that is, that is a very ambitious goal. And, but I think it's relevant. And definitely, as we're talking about, about net zero, about the, the health of the planet, and really the, the status of the planet, for us to survive in. I think it it does become more and more apparent with each passing year on what needs what kind of environment we are driving towards and as long as we can live in it, it seems like there is less emphasis on changing it. But I think that if we've destroyed the planet, then yes, absolutely time to go to Mars. I have not gotten to that point yet, and I'm glad that you haven't either saying we have to leave. We definitely need to figure it out. We got to figure this out, Joe. We got to figure yeah, it out. Absolutely. Keith, what about you? 
I uh, will not be making any uh, interplanetary references in my answer. Um, the So I uh, believe before I referenced maybe the long tail challenge here that I'm very bullish on on where we're progressing around net zero and, and sort of targeted that we're going to see really mass scale sort of achievements of net zero in large segments of the population or large segments of the economy and, and society, you know, in that 2040 timeframe, but the long tail is going to take us well beyond the 20, 2050 timeframe because of just the challenges if we think about this from a global problem. Um, so I, I talked a little bit about that on my last answer, but maybe the, the thing I'll add on this time um, is back to, uh, you know, my, my prior answer of, of, of mentioning momentum and sort of the interesting um sort of profile that that often takes, which is it, it, it runs on that exponential profile where it's very slow, very cumbersome for a very, very long time. And then when it starts to click, it hits that point where things move very, very quickly. And, and I, I feel like we're, we're a long way through that, that exponential curve and technologies are starting to, to come to bear. They're starting to give us the scale you know, even if you look at electric vehicles, it's still a very small, small number that, you know, of the total percentage. Uh, but you're starting to see the scale that can st- you can you can see an exponential opportunity there. So I think we're going to see more and more of those happen much faster and that we're going to make some big, really chunky changes and moves that really start to show themselves to have that exponential capability to drive down decarbonization, you know, in the late 2020s and 2030 timeframe. So, so these much nearer term that really get the momentum um, to maybe even accelerate some of those changes. I, I don't know that solves the long tail problem, but I, I feel like some of that momentum we can get behind these, some of these big meaty opportunities um, can, can drive you know, more and more people into, into, into this movement. That sounds great. And I agree. The momentum aspect is always fun to think about and fun to emphasize because that is what that's what excites me and what inspires me is hearing solutions like WellAware and all of the solutions that are on AWS and seeing the the advancements being made. That is what excites me and, and has me hopeful that that the companies that are setting 2030 goals are are completely achievable because of all the different opportunities there are to reach net zero. And to your point, Keith, there is going to be a long tail and not all of us can reach. Maybe we can't all reach net zero by 2030, but I think the ones that can should and the rest of us can keep keep reaching lower carbon every single day. Now I do know we are we're starting to run over. Are y'all okay for like another five ten minutes? I can go for a couple more minutes. Yeah. 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 I'm fine. Yeah. The other thing, just to add on that, Joe, is back to a theme we've talked about. But I'm not convinced that we really understand what we're solving for yet. Um, and it, it just goes back to everything we've talked about. You know, there's there's speculation. There's a lot of it. Doesn't matter kind of what your vantage point is. But the hard evidence is still kind of hard to put your, you know, your thumb on. And, and the reality is, technology can help us get there. Uh, we, it can help us measure 
emissions, it can help us get much better, you know, visibility into temperatures and climate changes and everything associated with, you know, what we're all ultimately wanting to solve to improve the planet and, you know, to improve our our civilization here. So I just, I do think it's an opportunity and, and I do think we'll see this, uh, you know, what we've talked about, kind of this flywheel break over and uh, break over leveraging, you know, now the ubiquity of the internet, the high speed, you know, wireless technologies that are out there and the coverage improvements and the mobility and the sensor, you know, advances and the processor advances and, we're going to put all these things together and we're going to start seeing the challenge in a very different perspective in the form of reliable, trustworthy, high resolution data. And from that, I do think we're going to be able to make a lot better decisions together because ultimately everybody wants to solve this problem. We're just kind of all running around with our heads cut off trying to figure out where to start. And um, we got to start with, with better measurement, better understanding of, of where the challenges are and, and speculation and finger pointing doesn't get anybody anywhere. So I think the role of technology is here and, and, you know, a lot of these big heavy lifts of the cloud and mobility and, and cellular, they've been done. And now they're here for us to leverage in the specific forms of industrial markets like oil and gas. And we're going to get it done. Yep, absolutely. I agree. So now the last question is you get to ask me a question. So Keith, I'm going to let you go first this time. All right. Joe, you got a geoscience background, right? Correct. All right. So I'm going, I'm going this direction. I want to, I want to tap into your expertise. So back to sort of this exponential characteristic of a lot of these enabling technologies, and it takes oftentimes decades before that momentum is built. Give me, give me your sense on, from a geothermal standpoint, where are we on that on that curve to I mean we've known about the technology for decades there's people been investing for decades but we haven't seen sort of that 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 upturn that says this can really hit the the scale to make a really big impact where are we how far are we away so how far away are we from exponential geothermal energy growth yes that is it's a it's a big question and a multifaceted question and i say that because i think the the exponential growth that is possible is is already there from a direct use heating and cooling standpoint we already have the amount of electricity and natural gas that's going into houses to to provide heating at i think it's it's about 75 65 or 75% of domestic heating and cooling is either electricity or or natural gas burning or heating oil in in various locations. So that's an opportunity there where we already have all of the technology for geothermal heat pumps or large community scale thermal energy networks that can be based on geothermal energy and geo exchange systems. So that is a opportunity there today ready to go that 
almost requires us to use a, it's more of an old world district heating and cooling technology. Think of probably what you had on your university campus or what you see more of with radiators in New York or Chicago, the older buildings, or what you see in Europe. But that is not the the way that that all of I think of everything west of the Mississippi, it is very spread out, very individualistic. You have your house and then two, three hundred feet away is the next house, maybe even further away. And so the idea of using natural gas or heating oil just makes sense for those buildings. And we almost need to shift our mind to a district heating, thermal energy network, communal mindset in order to apply that low temperature heating and cooling using off-the-shelf geothermal. And that would have a significant impact right there. The other aspect of large-scale, kind of gigawatt-scale geothermal electricity generation, that could be maybe five years away. There are different companies that have pilot projects planned before 2030 in that five-year time frame, and then commerciality by 2030. And those are going to require significant advancements in drilling technology, significant advancements in, in really wellbore stability and stimulation technology. And, and really what I'm talking about there is, is super hot rock, where we're talking about drilling anywhere from 5 to 10 to 20 kilometers into the subsurface, hitting temperatures that are in that 500 to 750 degrees Fahrenheit range and producing super critical uh, H2O. So those are areas, if, if we can get that, then we're talking about a single well having the equivalent of 40 or 50 megawatts of power. And so that is a way that we can really scale geothermal. But those are those are kind of hard numbers to hit. And these these are challenges that are actively being addressed, actively being being researched. And I hope they are solved in the next five to ten years. I think it in that scenario, only time will tell. Interesting. Thanks, Jeff. Matt, what about you? Do you have a question for me? The, those are super cool and uh, super cool answers. I love the moonshot on the geothermal stuff. That is, I, that's super cool. So you're in a great place to hear about all this cool stuff all the time, and, and I, you know, I have no doubt that you've got some really great perspective. So I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Um, and, and I, before I answer, I ask you this question, I want to give a lot of respect one more time to, you know, to Elon Musk. I think he's done an amazing job with Tesla and, you know, Tesla's not about a car. There's lots of electric cars out there. It's a data collection engine. That's what it is. And he's built a data company that I think he's just going to continue to, to, to build and grow and, and scale. And he's done some amazing things with it. But my question to you is, if you consider everything associated with carbon footprints and life cycles and uh, environmental impacts, which has 
a lower environmental impact, an F-350 or a Tesla Model S. Hey everyone, Joe here. I wanted to jump in and try to update this answer to this question. So when Matt asked me, when does an EV start to be more environmentally friendly than a combustion driven vehicle? In my answer, I grossly overestimated that break-even point for new EVs compared to a new combustion engine vehicle. So I want to update my answer and explain it a little bit more. There was a recent study by Argonne National Lab that suggests this break-even point, basically when an EV starts to be more environmentally friendly and produce less CO2 than a combustion engine, the recent study suggests it could be as early as 8,000 miles, but also as long as 80,000 miles, depending on the electricity that's being used to charge the EV, where you're at, how your driving is, various factors like that. There are others that still estimate that this could be higher, although not much, upwards of 100,000 miles. So one question maybe why is there this break-even point well it's because the carbon emitted while manufacturing an ev is higher than the carbon emitted while manufacturing a combustion engine so that ev starts at almost a handicapped it starts at a negative carbon footprint compared to combustion vehicles so what is the point in all of this where and when does an ev become cleaner than a brand new truck or does it become cleaner than a brand new truck? Well, I think it depends on how you drive as an individual and how long you drive that car. So if you drive sparingly and you trade in your car, say every 50,000 miles, then I would say this is a questionable answer. That EV may not be better for the environment if that is ultimately just going to the landfill or going into a recycling center. But if you drive your cars to 200,000 miles, whether it's an EV, whether it's a truck, whether it's a bicycle, then whatever vehicle you're using is going to have a net positive on the environment in terms of you're getting a good long life out of it. And I think this gets into a deeper question here. That deeper question being what is the best way to reduce your footprint while also being able to travel? Is there some type of circular economy ecosystem answer that is both environmentally friendly while also giving us that mobility and that freedom that we are so used to with being able to jump in a car and just go? I would think that not buying new cars, continuing to use the cars we already have, potentially finding a way to recycle EV batteries and replace EV batteries in a circular economy ecosystem, maybe that would be the best way to do this. Use the car you already have, use what you have until it is no longer usable. But is that true? That's one thing that I'd like to answer at some point. One thing I haven't seen that I would like to have is that comparison between that truck, that farm truck that you drive two, three, four hundred thousand miles versus the EVs that it would take to replace that. Now this gets into a bigger question of user preference, how individuals use their cars, consumer viewpoints. It also gets into the the way that that 
we are constantly being marketed to buy new and better shiny things. But are those new, better, shiny things actually the way to reach a net zero society? I'd like to answer those more later. For now, I'm going to stop this conversation here and let you finish hearing the conversation between myself, Matt, and Keith. Thank you, Matt and Keith, for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I just want to say thanks thanks to everybody who's uh, listening here and, and who's willing to take a step in. It's a brave step to, to go out and make a change and you know, improve the standard operating procedures. It's The easier thing is do nothing. And innovation's hard. It's uh, hard to step into. It's fraught with... Uh, with setbacks, but it takes grit uh, to get to get to innovation and, and uh, takes partnership. So thankful to everybody uh, listening to podcasts like these to look for ideas and new ways of doing it. Uh, and very much thankful to, to Keith. He and I get to work together a lot and just our overall partnership with AWS. And Joe, thank you for, uh, for, for raising the awareness on these really important topics so that we can you know, take steps together forward. And I will, uh, I will just jump on my uh, my uh, transparency soapbox. I think it's the it's the biggest trend for the next uh, decade. Is more and more transparency is going to breed more and more creativity. Just like in the example here on the F, uh, you know truck versus a Tesla, the more transparent we are, and all the reasons why, and all the data that supports you know what is the real footprint to you know, to our daily activities, to things we consume, the more creative we can, we can all be to, to go solve those things. But if we can't see it, we can't be creative. Absolutely. Well, Matt, Keith, thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review and tell me why you're enjoying, what you're enjoying most, or what you would like to hear more of. I'll have a link in the show notes for that. And if you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link for that will also be in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.